Hi, my name is Evelyn Doyle, and I'm the director for the play War of the Worlds. I'm here tonight to give you a background on War of the Worlds. As you may know, this is a book written by H.G. Wells, and he lived from 1866 to 1946, within my time lifeline. The War of the Worlds seems like such a contemporary play, but it was really written in the time of Queen Victoria. It was written in the time of um, David Livingston, uh, Gordon of Khartoum, Benjamin Disraeli, Charles Dickens was writing at the same time, and William Gladstone. Uh, the Crimean War had just finished, just before he was born. Uh, this was the time of Florence Nightingale. Uh, in 1829, the first train of, I believe, 35 miles uh, from Liverpool to Manchester. We had the first train accident. One of the members of the board uh, got bumped, pushed off the stage platform, and was crushed by the train. The modern era was definitely happening. Uh, the, first modern, the first monster epic from space was published in 1898. Now, H.G. Wells wrote his play, and it was published in a magazine form, a serial form. Uh, it was not uh, in 1897. It didn't get published as a book until 1899, and it came to America on a monthly installment in Cosmopolitan magazine. The H.G. Wells 1938 uh, program that Orson Welles did was magnificent theater. It was all the bells and whistles of uh, what you could ask for to get everybody stirred up. Uh, they had advertised, they had made it known they were going to do this play. It had, there were advertisements in the paper. It was in the radio listings, like we used to look at TV listings. It was in the radio listings. So I suppose if people had been paying attention, they would have known it was a play, as well as they could have changed their radio stations and heard that this horrible destruction was only happening on one radio station. Um, during, as the performance went on and panic arose in the countryside, uh, understand too that this was in 1938. This was the time when Hitler was invading countries, when, when war was imminent, and the Americans were aware of that. So the word invasion was something that was somewhat in the back of their minds already. So to hear the word, word invasion, whether it be Martians or Hitler's army, was kind of dicey, but they were prepared for invasion. Now. There was a lot of panic that went on in the New Jersey area where this performance was done. Uh, a lot of people were scared, a lot of people were rushing around. At one point in time, the police did burst into the studio and wanted to confiscate the scripts and segregate the actors away from the microphones, and they were stopped uh, because the play had to go on. At this same time, there was a rivalry between the newspapers and the radio. 
radio was new and just as television took business away from movies, radio was taking a lot of business and a lot of advertisers away from newspapers. So when the newspaper men got into the studio, they had their fun with the actors by exclaiming to them that there was blood running in the streets, there were people rioting, cars were being overturned, buildings were being burned. They really scared the actors. Um, when all of the craziness was over with and the actors did actually leave the studio, they walked out into a very quiet, calm, dark night. That's when they realized that they had been put on by the newspaper reporters that there really hadn't been blood running in the streets and cars overturned. Um, there were a swarm of lawsuits against CBS, um, but they were dismissed because there was no precedent for that kind of a lawsuit. Uh, the FCC took no action. Uh, they merely called it regrettable. H.G. Wells himself, his first reaction to the broadcast was that the, uh, was less than euphoric. Uh, but the sales of his book had soared, so eventually he was very happy that it had happened. Now that was the first. Uh, this broadcast has gone on to have quite a reputation. Uh, the War of the Worlds was broadcast again in 1944 in Santiago, Chile. Uh, it caused widespread panic. Uh, the governor of one province even mobilized troops and artillery to repel the Martians. Um, again, War of the Worlds was done in 1944 in Ecuador. Uh, Radio Quinta in uh, the Ecuadorian capital. Thousands of residents filled the streets. Uh, women and children were sent into the hills. Uh, when it was announced that this was a hoax, the crowds in the streets just made a beeline for the Comerica building and began to riot. Most of the radio employees did get out through a back door and many of them though uh, fled to the higher floor. Unfortunately, the mob set fire to this building and 20 radio station employees were killed. That's not a very good thing. Now the play was done again in 1968 in Buffalo, New York. Uh, October 31st, uh, it was announced in all the newspapers. It, every hour on the hour on this radio station for the week preceding the program, they told everybody they were going to be doing the play War of the Worlds. There were police stations had been advised, schools had been advised to warn of the upcoming broadcast. Needless to say, it didn't make a difference. People were frantically calling police departments and fire departments uh, because of the fear that the Martians were invading. Now understand, here again in 1968, we've got the Cold War going. Again, our minds are willing to accept the idea of an invasion. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, the Canadian National Guard sent units to guard the Peace Bridge, the Rainbow Bridge, and the Queensbury Bridge to repel the Martian invasion. 
This program was done again in 1988 in Radio Braza in Portugal. It caused another major panic. Uh, a group of over 200 protesters marched against the station when they found out that it was a hoax. Um, just to let you know, we are doing it. It is nothing more than a play. We hope you enjoy it in the, in the spirit that it was given. We've created a group here at the Orion Center called the Orion Center Players. Uh, hope to do more plays in the future. You may hear of it, and if you're interested in joining us, please do. Um, I thank you for your time. I hope you enjoy our play. that in the early years of the 21st century, this world was being watched closely by an intelligence greater than man's and yet as mortal as him. We were being scrutinized and studied as we went about serene in the assurance of our dominion over the spinning fragment of the solar system. Yet across an immense gulf, minds with intellects vast, cool and unsympathetic, were regarding this earth with envious eyes and slowly drew their plans against us. By the end of October in the year 2013 came the great disillusionment. A slight atmospheric disturbance over the upper peninsula of undetermined origin is reported, causing a low pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the northern part of Michigan. We now take you to the Park Hotel in downtown Rochester, where you will be entertained by the music of the Jump Street Swing Band. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. From the Meridian Room in the Park Hotel in downtown Rochester, we bring you the music of the Jump Street Swing Band. We interrupt our program with a news break. The Mount Jennings Observatory in Chicago, Illinois, reports that they have observed several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the University of Michigan confirms this report and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a cannon, unquote. We now return you to the music at the Park Hotel. In his direction, oh me, oh my, ain't that perfect? 
gentlemen, following on the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, the Government Meteorological Bureau has requested that the large observatories of the country keep a watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of this occurrence, we have arranged an interview with the noted astronomer Professor Pearson, who will give us his views on the event. We now take you to the university where our reporter, Carl Phillips, will interview the famous astronomer. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Carl Phillips speaking to you. Professor, would you please tell our radio audience exactly what you have seen on Mars? Well, nothing unusual at the moment. A red disc swimming in a blue sea, transverse stripes across the disc. Quite distinct now because Mars happens to be at the point nearest the Earth, in opposition, as we call it. In your opinion, what do these transverse stripes signify? Well, not canals, I can assure you, Mr. Phillips, although that's the popular conjecture of those who imagine Mars to be inhabited. From a scientific viewpoint, the stripes are merely the result of atmospheric conditions peculiar to the planet. Then you're quite convinced, as a scientist, that living intelligence, as we know it, does not exist on Mars. Well, I'd say the chances against it are a thousand to one. And yet, how do you account for those gas eruptions at regular intervals occurring on the surface of the planet? Well, honestly, I cannot account for it. By the way, Professor, for the benefit of our listeners, how far is Mars from the Earth? Approximately 50 million miles. Well, that seems to be a safe enough distance. Thank you. Uh, just a moment. Someone has just handed Professor Pearson a message. May I read this to our listening audience? Well, certainly, Mr. Phillips. This message is from Dr. Gray at 9.15 Eastern Standard Time. A seismograph registered a shock of almost earthquake intensity occurring within a radius of 40 miles of Detroit. Please investigate. Professor Pearson, could this occurrence possibly have something to do with the disturbances we observed on the planet Mars? Oh, hardly, Mr. Phillips. This is probably a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is merely a coincidence. However, we shall conduct a search as soon as daylight permits. Thank you, Professor. We are returning you now to our Lake Orion studios. Here is the latest bulletin from Professor Morse of McGill University. Reports of a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between the hours of 7.45 and 9.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This confirms earlier reports received from other American observatories. Now nearer to home comes a special announcement from Detroit. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Oxford, north of Detroit. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Bay City. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene. In the meantime, we take you to the Park Hotel in Rochester, where the Jump Street Swing Band is playing. This is Carl Phillips with Professor Pearson at the site of the landing. Well, I, I hardly know where to begin. It's, it's like something out of a modern sci-fi movie. There's this thing half buried in a vast pit in front of me. It must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters from trees that it must have struck on its way down. What I can see of the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor, at least not like the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder, 
has a diameter of, what would you say, Professor? I'd say about 100 feet. About 100 feet. The metal of the sheath as well, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of reddish, white. Uh, curious spectators are now pressing close to the object, and in spite of the effort of the state police to hold them back, they are getting in front of my line of vision. Uh, here is Mr. Williams, the owner of the farm. Uh, would you tell the audience, as much as you can remember of this rather unusual visitor that dropped into your backyard, uh, step closer, please. Well, I, I was listening to the radio and kind of drowsing. That professor fellow was talking about Mars. I heard something, kind of like a 4th of July rocket, and I saw a greenish streak and then zingo. Something smacked the ground and knocked me clear out of my chair. I was kind of stunned and frightened. And after the impact, I didn't see anything at first. I just heard something, a hissing sound. Uh, many cars are now parked in the field in back of us. Uh, police are roping off Lake George Road leading to the farm. All the car's headlights throw an enormous spotlight on the pit where the object is half buried. Some of the more daring souls are now venturing near the edge of the pit. Uh, I can hear a humming, uh, a scraping sound. Uh, Professor, can you tell us the meaning of this noise? Possibly the unequal cooling of its surface. I don't know what to think. The metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. It should have burned up with the friction of the Earth's atmosphere when it descended out of orbit. The atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite, but this thing is smooth. Look, it's moving. The end is unscrewing. Keep back! Everybody, keep back! Maybe there are men in it trying to escape. It's red hot. They'll burn to a cinder. Keep back! Keep those idiots back! Uh, this is the most terrifying thing I've ever witnessed. Uh, uh, wait, wait a minute. Uh, something's crawling out of the top. Uh, someone or, or, or something. I can see peering out of the black hole. Two luminous discs. Are, are, are they eyes? It, it must be a face. It might be... My God! Something's crawling out of the shadows like a gray snake. Now there's another one. And another one. They're like tentacles. They look like tentacles to me. They're, they're, I, I can see the thing's body. It's, it's large. Large as a bear. And it glistens like wet leather. But the face, it's indescribable. These eyes are black and they gleam like a serpent. The mouth is V-shaped with saliva dripping off the rimless lips. It, it seems to quiver and pulse. It, it, it can hardly move. It seems weighed down by possibly gravity or something. Am I on? Am I on? Here I am. I have moved behind a stone wall. From here I can see the whole scene. More state police have arrived. They're drawing up a barricade in front of the pit. No need to push the crowd back now. The captain is conferring with someone there, studying the object. Two men are advancing with something in their hands. Uh, that's a white handkerchief tied on a stick. A flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait, the police are trying to stop the men. Something is happening. A hump-shaped is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against... Uh, I think it's a, a mirror. What's that? There's a jet flame springing from the mirror. It's leaping right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Good lord! They're burning in flames! Now the whole field's on fire! The fire is spreading to the woods, the barn, the cars! The gas tanks will blow! It's spreading everywhere! It's coming this way! Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we're unable to continue the broadcast from the farm. 
Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. We'll return to them at our earliest opportunity. In the meantime, we have a bulletin from Professor Eidelkoff of the California Astronomical Society, who has expressed the opinion that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic eruptions on the surface of the planet. We now return you to the music. All of you, oh mama, oh papa, tell me the truth. Ain't he sweet? See him coming down the I have street. just been handed now a message that came from Oxford. At least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in the field. The bodies burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. The next voice you hear will be that of Brigadier General Montgomery Smith, commander of the National Guard in Pontiac, Michigan. I've been requested by the governor to place Wayne, Oakland, and Macomb counties under martial law. No one will be permitted to enter this area except by special pass. Four companies of the National Guard are proceeding to Oxford. They will aid in the evacuation of homes within the range of military operations. Thank you. You have just heard General Smith, commander of the National Guard. In the meantime, further details of the catastrophe at the farm are coming into the studio. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, crawled back into the pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fires near the pit. Combined fire departments of Oxford, Lake Orion, and Romeo are fighting the flames which menace the entire countryside. We have been unable to establish any contact with our mobile unit at the farm, but we hope to be able to return you there at the earliest possible moment. In the meantime, we take you, oh, just one moment please. Ladies and gentlemen, I have just been informed that we have finally established communication with an eyewitness of the tragedy. Professor Pearson has been located at a farmhouse near Oxford which has been established as an emergency observation post. As a scientist, he will give you his explanation of the calamity. The next voice you hear will be Professor Pearson, brought to you over the Emergency Ham Radio Network. Of the creatures in the cylinder at the farm, I can give you no authoritative information, either as to their nature, their origin, or their purpose here on Earth. Of their destructive instrument, I might venture some conjectural explanation. For want of a better term, I shall refer to this mysterious weapon as a laser-like beam which generates intense heat. It's all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. Thank you, Professor Pearson. Ladies and gentlemen, here is a bulletin from Rochester, Michigan. It is a brief statement informing us that the charred body of Carl Phillips has been identified at Crittenden Hospital. Here is a bulletin from Washington, D.C. The Office of the Director of the National Red Cross reports 10 units of Red Cross emergency workers have been assigned to the National Guard outside Oxford and Lake Orion. We have been informed that the fires at the farm and in the vicinity are now under control. Scouts report all is quiet in the pit and no sign of life is appearing from the mouth of the cylinder. This is Captain Lansing of the National Guard. 
now engaged in military operations in the vicinity of Oxford. The situation arising from the reported presence of certain individuals of unidentified nature is now under complete control. The cylindrical object, which lies in a pit directly below our position, is surrounded on all sides by armed infantry. All cause for alarm, if such cause ever existed, is now entirely unjustified. The things, whatever they are, do not even venture to poke their heads above the pit. I can see their hiding place plainly in the glare of searchlights. With all their reported resources, these creatures can scarcely stand up against heavy gunfire. Anyway, it's an interesting outing for the troops. I can make out the men crossing back and forth in front of the lights. It almost looks like a real war. Well, we ought to see some action soon. One of the companies is deploying on the left flank. A quick thrust and it'll all be over. Now wait a minute. I see something on top of the cylinder. No, it's nothing but a shadow. The troops are on the edge of the farm. 700 armed men closing in on an old metal tube. Wait. That wasn't a shadow. It's something moving. Solid metal. A kind of shield-like affair is rising up out of the cylinder. It's going higher and higher. Why, it, it's now standing on legs, actually rearing up a sort of metal framework. It's reaching above the trees and the searchlights are on it. Hold on! announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed at the farm tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle, which took place tonight at the farm, has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by an army in modern times. 700 men pitted against a single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars, and there are only 20 survivors. The rest are strewn over the battlefield area, crushed and trampled to death under the metal feet of the monster, or burned to cinders by its laser-like ray. The monster is now in control of the middle section of Michigan and has effectively cut the state apart. Communication lines are down from Oxford to Detroit. Railroad tracks are torn, and service from Durand to Chicago is discontinued. Highways to the north, south, and west are clogged with frantic human traffic. Police and army are unable to control the mad flight. By morning, the fugitives will have swelled Detroit it's estimated to twice its normal population. At this time, martial law prevails throughout Michigan and Ohio. We take you to Washington for a special broadcast on the emergency with the Secretary of Homeland Security. Citizens of the nation, I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you, private citizens and public officials, all of you, 
the urgent need of calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined to a comparatively small area, and we may place our faith in the military forces to keep them there. In the meantime, we must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us, so that we may confront this destructive adversary with a nation united, courageous, and consecrated to the preservation of the human species of this earth. I thank you. You have just heard the Secretary of Homeland Security from Washington, D.C. Bulletins too numerous to read are piling up in the studio. We're informed that a portion of Michigan is blacked out from communication due to the effect of the laser-like rays upon power lines and electrical equipment and, and cell towers. Here's a special bulletin from Washington. Cables received from England, Germany, and France are having similar invasions. Astronomers continue to report gas outbursts at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The opinion of the majority is that the enemy will be reinforced by additional rocket machines. Attempts are being made to locate Professor Pearson, who has observed the Martians at close range. It's feared he was lost in the recent battle. Selfridge Field Air Base scouting planes report three Martian machines visible above the trees. They're moving south towards Detroit. Laser rays are not in use, although they are advancing at express train speed. They seem to be picking their way carefully around the people fleeing ahead of them. They seem to be making a conscious effort to avoid destruction of buildings and countryside. However, they stop to uproot power lines, bridges, cell towers, and railroad tracks. Their apparent objective is to crush resistance, paralyze communication, and disorganize human society. Here's more information from a ham radio operator. Deer hunters have stumbled upon another cylinder similar to the first in Bald Mountain State Park. Army artillery are proceeding from Pontiac to blow up this invading unit before it can be opened, and the fighting machines are rigged. The Army are also taking up positions in Auburn Hills. Here's a bulletin from Selfridge Field. Scouting planes report enemy machines, now three in number, increasing speed southward a fleet of Air Force bombers carrying smart bombs are flying in pursuit of the enemy. Drones are acting as guides and are keeping the speeding enemy in sight. Just a moment, please. Ladies and gentlemen, we take you to the local commander of the National Guard in Bald Mountain Park. Range, 32 meters. 32 meters. Projection, 39 degrees. 39 degrees. Fire! 140 yards to the right. Shift range, 31 meters. 31 meters. Projection, 37 degrees. 37 degrees. Fire! A hit! We got the tripod on one of them. They've stopped. The others are trying to repair it. 
Quick, get the range. Shift 30 meters. 30 meters. Projection 27 degrees. 27 degrees. Fire! I, I can't see the shell landing. They're letting off smoke. What is it? Uh, black smoke. Moving this way, lying close to the ground. It's moving fast. Put on gas mask. <laughs> get ready to fire. Shift 24 meters. 24 meters. Projection 24 degrees. 24 degrees. Fire! Still can't see. The smoke's coming near. Get the range. <coughs> 23 meters. 23 meters. <coughs> 23 meters. This is the commanding officer. The Air Force bombers over Lake Orion. Enemy tripods now in sight, reinforced by three more machines, six altogether. One machine already crippled. Guns now appear silent. A heavy black fog hanging close to the ground, nature unknown. No sight of laser ray. Enemy now turning east. Another straddles I-75. They're pushing down a high-tension power station. The machines are close together, and we're ready to attack. Planes are circling, ready to strike. A thousand yards, and we'll be over the first. 800 yards. 600 yards. 400 yards. 200 yards. A giant arm is raising from the machines. There's a green flash. They're spraying us with rays. Engines are giving out. No chance to release bombs. Only one thing left. Drop on them. Plane and all. We're diving on the first one. We're just going. We're just going. 4X4L. Calling Selfridge Field. Come in, please. Eight bombers in engagement with enemy tripod machines over Lake Orion. The engines are being incapacitated by laser rays. All crashed. One enemy machine destroyed. Enemy now discharging heavy black smoke. Calling CQ4X4L. Calling CQ4X4L. Come please. What's the matter? Where are you? Calling. I'm speaking from the roof of the Rensen in Detroit. The sirens you hear are to warn people to evacuate the city as the Martians approach. It's estimated in the last two hours that one million people have moved out along the roads to the south and west. All communications with Lake Orion, Auburn Hills, and Romeo stopped ten minutes ago. No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, Air Force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast, but we'll stay broadcasting till the end. Looking at the waterfront, I see all manner of boats overloaded with fleeing populations pulling out from the docks. The streets are all jammed. Wait a minute. Enemy is now in sight. Five great machines. We're told that Martian machines are falling all over the country. They seem to be timed and spaced. 
The first machine stands watching, looking over the city. Its steel cowlish head is even with the skyscrapers. It waits for the others. They rise like a lion in new towers in the city's west side. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke, drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. They're running toward the Detroit River, thousands of them, dropping like rats. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Grand Circus Park. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They're falling like flies. Oh my God. They're picking up people and sending out a probe into the heart. Oh, the screaming. They're feeding on the people. Oh my God. As I set these notes on paper, I'm obsessed by the thought that I may be the last living man on Earth. I've been hiding in this empty house near Lake Orion, a small island of daylight cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. All that happened before the arrival of these monstrous creatures in the world now seem like another part of life. A life that has no continuity with the present furtive existence of this lonely derelict who pencils these words on the back of some astronomical notes bearing the signature of Richard Pearson. I look down at my blackened hands, my torn shoes, my tattered clothes, and try to connect them with the professor who lived at U of M and who on the night of October 30th glimpsed through his telescope an orange splash of light on a distant planet. What day is it? Do days even exist without calendars? Does time pass when there are no human hands left to wind the clocks? I'm writing down my daily life, and I tell myself I shall preserve human history between the hard covers of this little book. But to write I must live, and to live I must eat. I find moldy bread in the kitchen, and an orange not too spoiled to swallow. I keep watch at the window. From time to time I catch sight of a Martian above the black smoke. Suddenly I see a Martian, mounted in its machine, spraying the air with a jet of steam as if to dissipate the smoke. I watch in a corner as his huge metal legs nearly brush up against the house. Exhausted by terror, I fall asleep. It's morning now. The morning sun streams in the window. The black cloud of gas is lifted and the scorched metal looks as though a black snowstorm has passed over it. I venture from the house and make my way to the road. There's no traffic. For some reason, I feel safer trailing these monsters than running away from them. And I keep careful watch. I have seen the Martians feed. An arm of the machine picks up the man, woman, or child, and a tentacle is inserted into the heart, and they are drained of their blood. The husk of the body is dropped to the ground. Should one of the machines appear over the top of the trees, I'm ready to fling myself flat on the earth and play dead. I come to a chestnut tree. October chestnuts are ripe, so I fill my pockets. I must keep alive. For two days, I wander in a vague southern direction through a desolate world. Finally, I notice a living creature, 
a small squirrel in a beech tree, and I stare at him in wonder. He stares back at me. I believe at that moment the animal and I shared the same emotion, the joy of finding another living being. I push on south where I find dead cows in a field, and beyond are the charred ruins of a dairy. A silo remains standing guard over the wasteland like a lighthouse deserted by the sea. Stride the silo perches a weathercock, the arrow points south. The next day I come to a city vaguely familiar in its contours, yet its buildings strangely dwarfed and leveled off, as if a giant sliced off the tallest buildings with a capricious sweep of his hand. I had found the village of Lake Orion saved by some whim of the advancing Martians. Presently, with an odd feeling of being watched, I caught sight of something crouching in a doorway. I made a step towards it, and it rose up like, and became a man, a man armed with a large knife. Stop. Where did you come from? Well, I come from many places. A long time ago from the University of Michigan. There's no food here. This is my area, all this end of town down to the creek. There is only food for one. Which way are you going? I don't know. I guess I'm just looking for people. What was that? Did you hear something just now? Only a bird. A live bird. You get to know that birds have shadows these days? Say, we're in the open here. Let's crawl into this doorway and talk. Have you seen any Martians? Nah. They've gone over to Detroit. At night, the sky is alive with their lights, just as if people were still living there. By daylight, you can't see them. Five days ago, a couple of them carried something big by here. I believe they're going to start flying. And it's all over with humanity. At least there's still you and I, just the two of us left. The Martians got themselves in solid. They wrecked the greatest country in the world. Those green stars, they're falling somewhere every night. They've only lost one machine. There isn't anything to do. We're done. We're licked. I was in the National Guard positioned at the farm. That wasn't in any way a war. It's a war between the Martians and us ants. And we're edible ants. I found that out. What do you think they'll do with us? I've thought it all out. Right now, we're caught just as they wanted. The Martians only have to go a few miles to get a crowd on the run. But they won't keep doing that. They'll begin catching us systematic, like keeping the best and storing us in cages and things. They haven't begun on us yet. Not begun? Not begun. All that's happened so far is because we don't have enough sense to keep quiet, bothering them with guns and such stuff, losing our heads and rushing off in crowds. Now, instead of rushing around blind, we've got to fix ourselves up according to the way things are now. Cities, nations, civilization, progress, done. But if that's so, then what is there to live for? Well, there won't be any more concerts, no nice little dinners and restaurants. If it's amusement you're after, I guess the game's up. And what is there left? Life. Life, that's what's left. I want to live. Yeah, and so do you. We're not going to be exterminated, and I don't mean to be caught either, and tamed and fattened and bred like cattle. Well, what are you going to do? I'm going on, right under their feet. I've got a plan. We men as men are finished. We don't know enough. We've got to learn plenty before we've got a chance. We've got to live and keep free while we live. See, I've thought it all out. Yeah, you've thought it all out, haven't you? You bet I have. And that isn't all. These Martians will make pets of some of us. 
train us to do tricks. Who knows, they may even get sentimental over Pet Boy, who grew up and had us had to be killed. Some, maybe they'll train us to hunt us. No, that's impossible. No human being would ever. Yes, they will. There's men who'll do it gladly. If one of them ever comes after me, why? And in the meantime, you and I and the others like us, where are we to live when the Martians own the earth? I've got it all figured out. We'll live underground. I've been thinking about the sewers under Detroit. And under Detroit also, there are the, the salt mines. There are miles and miles of them. The main ones are big enough for anybody. Then there's cellars and vaults. You begin to see, and we'll get a bunch of strong men together. The weak ones are out. And you meant me to go? Well, I gave you a chance, didn't I? Well, we won't quarrel about that. Go on. And we've got to make safe places for us to stay and get all the books we can. Science books. That's where men like you come in, see? We'll raid the libraries and the museums. We'll even spy on the Martians. We may not have to learn so much. Just imagine this. If four or five of their own fighting machines suddenly start off lasers blazing, left and right, and not a Martian in them. Not a Martian in them, but men. Men who've learned the way to run the machines. It may even be in our own time. Imagine having one of them with lasers wide and free. We turn it on the Martians, we turn it on the weak men, we bring everybody down to their knees. And that's your plan? You and me, and a few more of us, we'd own the world. I see. What's the matter? Where are you going? Not to your world. Goodbye, stranger. After parting with the soldier, I came at last to the DIA, where I entered that silent area, anxious to know the fate of the city. I made my way down Woodward and reached Cass Avenue, and there again was black powder and several bodies and an evil, ominous smell from the houses. I wandered up through the New Center area, and I stood alone in Campus Marshes, where I caught a sight of a lean dog running down Woodward with a piece of dark brown meat in his jaws and a pack of starving mongrels at his heels. He made a wide circle around me and, as though he feared I might prove a fresh competitor, I walked up Woodward to the direction of the strange smell, past silent shop windows displaying their mute wares to empty sidewalks, past a showroom with 2014 model cars facing empty streets. I watched a flock of black birds circling in the sky and I hurried on. Suddenly, I caught the sight of the hood of a Martian machine standing somewhere on Jefferson Avenue, gleaming in the late afternoon sun. An insane idea made me rush recklessly across Jefferson, and from there I could see, standing in a silent row along the street, 19 of those great metal titans, their cowls empty, their great steel arms hanging listlessly by their sides. I looked in vain for the monsters that inhabit those machines. Suddenly my eyes were attracted to the immense flock of black birds that hovered directly above me. They circled to the ground, and there before my eyes, stark and silent, lay a Martian, with hungry birds pecking and tearing brown shreds of flesh from the dead body. Later, when their bodies were examined in the laboratories, it was found that they were killed by bacteria bacteria against which their systems were unprepared, slain after all men's defenses had failed by the humblest thing put upon this earth. Already when I had watched them, they were doomed, dying and rotting even as they went to and fro. By the toll of a billion deaths over the centuries, man has become immune and bought his birthright to the earth. 
and it is his against all comers. And it would still be his, were the Martians ten times as mighty, for neither do men live nor die in vain. Before the cylinder fell, there was a general persuasion that throughout all the deep of space that no life existed beyond the petty surface of our minute sphere. Now we see further. Dim and wonderful is the vision I have conjured up in my mind of life spreading slowly from this little seedbed of the solar system throughout the inanimate vastness of space. But this is a remote dream. It may be that the destruction of the Martians is only a reprieve to them and not to us as the future were ordained, perhaps. Strange it now seems to sit in my peaceful study writing down this last chapter of the record begun at the farm in Oxford. Strange to see from my window the children playing in the street. Strange to see young people strolling on the sidewalk where the new spring grass heals the last black scars of a bruised earth. Strange to watch the sightseers enter the museum where the disassembled Martian machines are kept on public view. Strange when I recall when I first saw it, bright and clean, hard and silent, under the dawn of that far-off day. Ladies and gentlemen, let me assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than is the holiday offering it was intended to be. This was the Orient Center Players and On TV's radio version of dressing up in a sheet, jumping out of a bush, and saying, Boo! We couldn't soap all your windows or teepee all your trees by tomorrow night, so we did the next best thing. We destroyed the world before your ears. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that all institutions are still open for business. So say goody, everybody, and remember the terrible lesson you learned today, that the grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is the inhabitant of a pumpkin patch. And if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. <laughs>